0: A very good morning to you, Alex. First is my name. This is First on Film and Entertainment. Joining me an all male ensemble. Unfortunately, Jackie Hamilton cannot be with us today. Gregory King, come on down.
1: Good morning, Alex and gang.
0: How are we all? Peter Kraus, how are you doing? Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. And a very very happy Dave Griffiths. Hello. Hey, mate. Hey, Peter. Hey, Greg. How are you going? Let us talk about film, folks, to begin with. And, look, I mean, this is a movie that I think will appeal to a number of people but not necessarily everybody, and it is a a situation where three people are involved in a relationship. It's called Both Sides of the Blade. It's MA rated. It runs for 116 minutes, and it's a slow-moving family drama about lost, interconnected people trying to navigate their lives. The common thread in this movie is angst. So you've got a divorcee and ex-prisoner called Gene, played by Vincent Linden. He's been with Sarah Juliet Benoche for nine years. He is a former rugby player who retired as a result of injury. He's got a 15-year-old son who's being brought up by Gene's mum, And he's proving to be quite a handful. And this happened, obviously, when he went to prison. The pair live three hours from Paris, where Jean used to live. So I'm talking about the grandmother and the 15 year old. Sarah is a radio host. Jean and Sarah are married, very much in love. If somewhat insecure in that love, they're constantly being asking one another for acclamation. Their relationship's about to be sorely tested. When Jean goes into business, with Sarah's former romantic partner, Francois, played by Gregory Collin. Now, I reckon that should have sent up red flags to begin with, but there you go. Francois has formed an agency to recruit junior football talent at Jean Sayso. so Even a decade on from when Francois left her, Sarah still holds a torch for him. And when he sets eyes upon her again, it's evident that that spark is still there. So both sides of the blade becomes a messy love triangle, where each of this trio feels they are in the right and are being sold short. It's been written by Christine Angot and Claire Dennis, based on Angot's book, directed by Dennis. So it's quite an intriguing look at the human psyche. We all have our own take on various matters, whether or not that correlates with others' views, and that goes to the heart of how you define truth. Is truth reality or is it open to interpretation? So, Dave, if I see an event and you see an event, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are perceiving it the same way, does it?
2: No. In fact, I think they did a study a few years ago when they were talking about crime statistics and they said quite often if you have any more than two people who witness an event, every person's story about what they saw will be different, right down to key facts of colours of cars and things like that.
0: Absolutely. And I I'd also read about this, and it's fascinating when you're trying to recollect something in a court of law, the longer the time that goes by, your perception may change as well. And you could swear you're at an event, but because you've read about it, because you've heard about it, because you've seen it on television, it can influence your own perceptions. So this is where truth is not necessarily a defined concept. That's what both sides of the blade's all about. And really in this case, Jean often doesn't give clear answers, or he talks around issues. And Francois is a narcissist, and Sarah somehow thinks she can satisfy both men when clearly she can't. So the main players here are Benoist and Linden, and I thought they acquitted themselves well. Dave, what did you think?
2: I haven't seen it yet, so I haven't seen it. Yeah, no obviously, obviously Well, one. look, let, let's let's start
0: with uh, you, Greg. What did you think of both sides of the blade and the performances of Benoist and Linden?
1: I thought that they were good performances, but I somehow didn't believe in the relationships here at all. Which Really? No, none of them, Greg? None? No, no. They didn't strike. I just I something about the relationships didn't strike me as believable or credible there, and that sort of threw me off a little bit there as well. But the film does explore those, as you said, those fragile relationships here um, and the corrosive effect of the lack of trust there, um, suspicion, um, paranoia, uh, insecurity all, all come into play here as well. And these are things that are familiar to the films of Claire Denis there as well. But I agree that the performances of the two leads were quite um, strong there. Um, Binoche and Lyndon were able to convey so much with just their looks and their glances at each other there. The first 10 minutes of the film almost is wordless, so so much relies on their performances, their ability to convey their emotions and what they're thinking there. Um, but I thought Binoche is always very good, Here she's good as a middle-aged woman wrestling with her need for love, security and intimacy. Um, But I thought she was somewhat selfish there. Um, And Lyndon has an intense presence which he uses to good um, effect here, finding both a vulnerability and a suppressed rage in his character there. And even though the performances are tightly controlled there, somehow the film kept me at a distance there. Um, I think this is one that fans of Janie will appreciate more than just a casual viewer there. Um, And the cinematographer works in... um, Close up quite often there, which heightens the emotional tension there. And it uses moody lighting and a greyish palette that reflects the grim tone of the material. But as I said, I just found it kept me at a bit of a distance there for much of the time. Yeah, look, I thought the
0: characters were well formed. I really did. I, I thought that their vulnerabilities were exposed. I I was a little bit concerned that the story took a long time to develop, Peter. I reckon the script could readily have been tightened and that would have heightened the drama. It would have strengthened audience involvement, which I think is critical to any movie. What did you think?
3: Uh, I don't quite agree because uh, if you're a fan of Claire Denis' films and she's made so many interesting films about relationships, about people uh, at the edge uh, in terms of what they're going through, what they might be suffering or their uh, psychological experiences, whatever the case might be. Um, In this case, um, she co-wrote this film uh, uh, with her co-writer and this is all about how fractured relationships develop when there is that lack of trust or lack of understanding and she plays it out very carefully uh, and very consistently. Um, So Denis is such an important filmmaker insofar as she really gets into the heart of the human psyche and that's what makes her film so effective. It's interesting to note that um, Fire was the original international title of the film, and that's how it was screened at the French uh, Film Festival uh, earlier this year, and now it's been given another title as in both sides of the blade. I'm not sure if either of those titles are necessarily
0: uh, particularly uh, uh, worthwhile. No, but- I, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I still I came out of it and thought, oh, really? There's got to be a better title to it than this.
1: And that I- title actually comes from the song that plays over the end credits.
0: Sure, but was there, okay, let's let's come up with another title now on the spot. Let's see whether we can come up with something that's more intriguing or holds our interest more. Both sides of the blade, I'm not sure that, again, the catchiness, the marketability, things of that nature. I mean, I'm not saying it will put you off seeing it, but it, it doesn't really get to the heart of the issue to me. Is there any other title you can think of, Peter, that would be oh, better suited?
3: well i was thinking of something like human psyche or human frailty
0: or but, but even even ménage trois which would get people <laughs> in, no 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 seriously i mean you know that would get people because sex sells right and and sexuality is one of the elements and and really a core element in all of this and and so to me i mean if you if you're marketing something don't you try and sex it up or shouldn't you
3: but that's not what Claire Denis is trying to do and that's not her films. I, she wouldn't agree with anything like that. Right, look,
0: would- I, I agree. I, I agree with what you've just said there, but I suppose that, you know, again, it depends on, okay, how much say does she have? Maybe she has all the say, it's her film, I don't know. But generally when you're trying to market a movie, there there are some people who are experts at doing that and if if a title puts you off, that in itself is a worry to me. I'm sorry. Well, yes, but you, you always look past the title. You look at who the but actors are. But you don't. Not, not everybody does. I mean, that's what I'm saying to you, Peter. You may look past it because you're a film reviewer, but I, I reckon there's got to be something that catches the eye, and often a short, a, a, a single word is, is is all you need, and and it's very difficult to encapsulate a movie in a single word un, unless you you know pick something from it. And I suppose fire. Is, is a better title to me than Both Sides of the Blade, if it has to be one of them. Anyway. Yeah. I've I've stopped you mid sentence. So keep going.
3: Please. <laughs> no, that's all right. I was just going to say, um, and what Denis is very good at is using melodrama because there are some heightened scenes uh, in the film between, uh, especially uh, Vincent Lindon and uh, Juliette Binoche, which uh, sort of uh, portray the the fraught nature of their relationship, and she does that very carefully, uh, so that no one is necessarily to blame for uh, the situation that each of them finds themselves in. But Juliette Benoche's character is such an important one because she is caught between a rock and a hard place about her uh, relationships and her love and her understanding of the two men and how she can't decide between the two.
0: And, I, and I your life. I absolutely do believe that because you can, surely you can love more than one person and yeah. that, Having said that, all of them are wrong, right? All of them are doing some things that are not appropriate. As I, I mentioned at the outset, you've got a very closed shop character in the first instance who she's now married to who finds it difficult to express himself. Mm. Oh, <clears throat> pardon me. And you've also then got uh, another character who's clearly into himself, a narcissist, right? So, you know, th- there's there's a lot going on here and it shows them as being human beings with frailties. And I mean, if, if we dig down into each of us, all of us have got foibles. All of us don't always conduct ourselves in a way that we potentially would even like to. And that's what I liked about the human elements of both sides of the blade. Anyway, give, give us a score, Peter. What would you give it out of 10? Both sides of the blade is rated MA and runs for 116 minutes.
3: Another very strong film from Claire Denis, and I give it eight out of ten. Wow. Okay,
0: Greg, you'll you'll be a lot lower. Go for it.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give it five. As I said, I had trouble. I didn't believe the relationships, which was a problem from the word go for me. Uh, look, I thought it
0: was a a good film. I, I wouldn't have called it a great film. I I'd say seven out of ten. So yeah, okay, we're we're a little bit all over the place with this one, but I'd still say it's most worthwhile going along and seeing it in spite of what you've said, Greg. I I think there's enough intrigue there to get people interested. Let's move on to 3,000 Years of Longing, which is a fantasy, and it runs for 108 minutes, rates M at the cinemas. Look, I think it was the highest-grossing movie of 1992. That was Aladdin, was it not? And that gave us the story of the genie in a lamp. And now we fast forward 30 years and you've got this tale of a gin in a bottle. You've got a character called Dr. Alethea Binney, played by Tilda Swinton. She's a fated scholarly storyteller. There's a name that they give the storyteller here, but I've simplified it and just said storyteller. She's a creature of reason and she's having vivid and alarming visions. On a conference in Istanbul, she purchases an old misshapen bottle. But when she tries to clean it, something quite extraordinary happens. Her rubbing triggers the appearance of a jinn, which is a genie, who's been trapped inside for a great many years. He proceeds to relay to her how, on three separate occasions, after he was freed, forces conspired to see him trapped again. These fantastic tales involve love, war and betrayal. To remain free, the jinn implores Alethea to make three wishes. Mind you, in so doing, there are rules. So, one example: she can't wish for eternal life. She, Alethea, is suspicious that she may be being taken on a ride. But the more she hears, the stronger her connection to the Jin. So, still, there are sounds in this modern world that don't sit comfortably with the djinn either, because bear in mind he's been around for literally thousands of years. So 3,000 Years of Longing is, well, I thought it was quite engaging, uh, decidedly far-fetched. I mean, it is a fantasy. It's a fantasy about connection. And one thing, it's proof positive that Tilda Swinton has credibility even when she plays a creative, if lonely, soul in a story of make-believe. And she's got this sort of intelligent visage that is her hallmark, even in a movie which is as out there as 3,000 Years of Longing. Don't you think, Dave?
2: Oh, definitely. I I thought this was a, a stunning film. It's it, We're really seeing what filmmakers were able to achieve during COVID. This was another COVID film. George Miller tried to find a film that he could film during COVID with all the restrictions that were on how many people you could have on set and things like that and This normally you would expect to be a big $200 million production, um, traveling to Egypt to film, traveling to Turkey to film. Instead, George Miller found a way to make a sci-fi fantasy like this Mm. with normally just two or three people on set at a time for filming, like apart from the crew. And it turns out to be absolutely amazing. It does at times feel like you're watching a theatrical production but it works so well and it makes the mystical element of it seem even more magical to watch with the way that he's been able to bring it to screen knowing that for a majority of this time it was a crew and two and three people in front of the camera yeah remarkable that no, absolutely
0: quite so because it looks really lavish doesn't
2: it it does it that's like i said it looks it looks like a a big $180, 190000000 million film like we see get made these days. But you know that it was made in a very tight way, very restrictive way. But I think that actually adds to the film. The only thing I, I find interesting about this film is I'm not sure what market it's going to go for mm-hmm. because I can't see a lot of younger people wanting to see this film. It, it has that weird kind of feel where it's part popcorn and part, uh, part artistic film. So Yeah. It's very interesting. I saw this in an open session, um, the other night and the amount of people that were in the cinema surprised me because there was more in there than what I thought would be there. But the audience was very much an older audience.
0: Ah, yeah. And well, it's, it's not a kid's film. Let's be honest in terms of uh, content, not a young kid's film. Having said that, this is the man, George Miller, who is responsible for Babe and Happy Feet, not to overlook Mad Max. So yep. he's got pedigree in the genre, D- doesn't he, Greg? I haven't seen this
1: one yet, Alex.
0: That's all right. Well, Peter, I mean, this is, this is a guy who sometimes breaks expectation in terms of the films that he makes, George Miller.
3: He certainly does. And uh, uh, and uh, and George Miller has directed, I think, something that is quite special in many respects. Not perfect, but uh, a, a fantasy that harks back, for me, to the Hollywood films of the 50s that went into uh, Egypt and Arabia and uh, yes. Arabian culture and so on. And so there is that sort of fa- strong fantasy uh, element to it. But also it's about a relationship. And uh, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton do such a good job Job of developing their relationship their understanding of each other's different uh, backgrounds perspectives uh, and uh, and and histories and and what i really liked about this film is the clever use of special effects in this film not to overwhelm the audience but to uh, assist with the understanding of these characters and uh, and <laughs> and the difference between the two of them and how they uh, attempt to find some sort of middle ground that they can work together on. Uh, Really interesting film. I I enjoyed it, Uh, uh, very clever. Um, I perhaps would have liked a bit more of the backstories, especially of Tilda Swinton's character, but nevertheless I thought it was a pretty good film.
0: Well, I mean, the picture really colourful throughout, and and the production designed by Roger Ford. That that was a feature to me. Visual effects they are allowed to flourish, and there's plenty to admire. Uh, the, it's been co-written with Augusta Gore, and they well, if you think about it, both Miller and Gore have let their imaginations wan- wander. The, the imaginations have gone wild, a- and it is based on a short story called "The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye" by A.S. Byatt. I can't say that. I had seen or read that short story before I saw the film, I thought that Idris Elba, he, he sort of really added this sort of big-ticket gravitas as the djinn. And the way that the djinn first appears is quite memorable, isn't it? You, you think about it, Peter. Uh, yes. first visage. I mean, this sort of bronze, massive structure uh, of, of a, I think it was only initially a, a, a hand, isn't it, that we see from, yes. from the collection. And that that was a wonderful introduction to this movie and he this gin weaves many a colorful story and the way i look at it and this is where you talked about the audience dave it's painted as an adult fairy tale isn't it it's not it's not a a film that's going to attract a a seven-year-old
2: exactly and yeah Um, some of the because
0: some of the sexuality involved it wouldn't be appropriate for a seven-year-old to see either
2: yeah, exactly. And I think that's where it kind of sits in that kind of weird realm. And I think the, the poster is what actually helps that to happen as well, because the poster almost makes it look like it is a film for kids, like that it's a retelling of Aladdin. So mm. then when you go into it and you see the adult content, it is, uh, yeah, it, it sits the film in a really weird spot. I think we also have to pay tribute to uh, John Seale here, the uh, cinematographer as well. He does a a magnificent job with this film. And um, he's been brought out of retirement to do this film. Uh, George Miller's been able to bring him out of retirement twice now um, to get him to work on films. But, uh, yeah, just a a marvellous cinematographer who, again, does an amazing job with this film. I hate to draw
0: a parallel of football. No, I don't, but I will. It's kind of like Alastair Clarkson calling upon his right-hand man whose life has moved on to get back to working with him at North Melbourne.
2: Exactly. And when you look at John Seale's career, he's worked on films like The Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, Witness and The English Patient. But yeah, then he went into retirement and um, George Miller pulled him out for Mad Max Fury Road and now has pulled him out again eight years later to do this one. So and I think that actually helps because John Seale does have um, a, a fantastic career with the films that he's done, but he's also done some of the Harry Potter films He also did Prince of Persia. So this style that we see with this film is right in his ballpark for the films that he's uh, made throughout his career. Peter, are you impressed that football overlaps with film?
0: You do live a rich fantasy life, Alex. (laughs) Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) Now let's get a score from you, Dave. Look, I I really, really enjoyed this film. It surprised me how much I enjoyed it. I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10. Wow. Wow. For 3,000
0: years of longing, that's a big score. I wouldn't rate it that highly. I'd give it a 7. What would you give it, Peter?
3: Yeah, I also give it 7 out of 10. I really liked it.
0: Mm. Okay. Let's move on to a movie that came out a couple of weeks ago, and I finally got around to seeing it. I'm not sure how many of you have done so. It's called The Outfit, and it's rated MA 105 minutes. Now, the pedigree is really, really strong because – The people behind this, or at least a person behind it, Graham Moore, who's the writer, he did the imitation game, and he's also, in this case, the director of the outfit. It's a deceptively clever period crime drama. It's a, I reckon I'd I'd best describe it as a slow burn mesmeriser, and it's set in Chicago in 1956. All of the action takes place at the premises of a bespoke tailor. His name is Leonard, played by Mark Rylance. What a fine actor he is. Well-spoken, nondescript, British, what he calls cutter, right? He cuts up the cloth, who takes great pride and pleasure in his work. His narrative, this is Leonard's narrative about what goes into making a suit, underlines the piece. So you learn more about suit making than you probably even thought you needed to know. But there you go. Rolls of fabric, of tape, chalk, cutter shears, they are prominent throughout. The shop also employs a receptionist called Mabel, played by Zoe Deutsch, who dreams of travelling to Europe. While she and Leonard go about their business, the place is actually a front for Irish mob boss Rob Roy Boyle, Roy Boyle, played by Simon Russell Beale. He uses the premises as a stash house for dirty money. Boyle's son, Richie, played by Dylan O'Brien, and his chief enforcer, Francis, Johnny Flynn, visit the shop daily. Richard makes it clear he's nonplussed that he has to play second fiddle to Francis, who once put his life on the line for Richie's father, the mob boss, the Irish mob boss, Roy Boyle. One day you've got Richie and Francis making their way into the place in desperation because Richie's just been shot in the abdomen. And it's only some deft craftsmanship from the store tailor Leonard, that helps actually save him. Mind you, it's all downhill thereafter, given that there's a stool pigeon in their midst who's actually ratted them out. Behind the goings-on is actually a turf war, but the primary focus is on the tailor and, to a lesser extent, the receptionist whose lives are on the line. And it is a really whip-smart script by Graham Moore and Jonathan McLean. It's got a really minimalistic setting. I actually had had this feeling, again, it's like a play. You could see the action unfolding on stage. Much of the credit, though, in terms of the movie's success, lies in this measured performance by Mark Rylance as the unflappable cutter. Leonard's ability to remain calm under pressure and to read people and delicate situations is what elevates the outfit above the ordinary. And I I thought that Rylance displayed spectacular restraint inhabiting... Leonard's razor-sharp mind. And I also appreciated the the feistiness in Zoe so It." She she comes across as a character with much life to live. Leonard is, is someone who's been there and done that. Which of you have actually seen the outfit, Peter?
3: Yes, I have seen it.
0: Yeah, so uh, did you – I thought it was – you have to stick with it, but if you stick with it, you get a lot out of it. It is a very clever film
3: which sort of mimics some of those British and it was shot in Britain actually uh, even though it's set in Chicago. Um mimics a lot of those 40s and 50s crime dramas um from England, from the UK. And uh, this one does it very cleverly because as you say quite rightly it's uh, it's very well written and has a number of plot twists which uh, perhaps one too many, but that we won't I won't do any spoilers there, but is very clever in terms of its approach to um, um, what each of the characters is going to do, and it's so uh, interesting to see Simon Russell Beale playing a gangster after playing Churchill and uh, and other sorts of characters in other versatility. films.
0: Versatility, versatility, yes, indeed, exactly. Mm, now it's good. Have any any of the others of you seen yeah, the? I've, I've seen it. Yeah, it's a Greg.
1: Your views? Yeah, uh, you, what you said there, Alex, is right. It's very theatrical in the staging with that one setting, basically the minimalist. Um, tailor shop there and the small cast there but the tension gradually develops there as the situation spirals out of control there and it becomes a sort of battle of wits between Leonard um the boss man Boyle and the um gangsters there and at play is a lot of dynamics are going on in the background there I thought it made good use of the production design there and the cinematography there and Mark Rylance as you so rightly pointed out He's superb in the role there. He's got this low-key, understated style there that works effectively. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And even though it's very theatrical, you can imagine he's been put, um, turned into a stage play quite easily. That's still very good. The claustrophobic tension actually works in its favour here. Oh, very much so. And no question about that. I mean, as
0: Francis Johnny Flynn is quite mercenary, Dylan O'Brien – playing opposite him as Richie is a real hot head and he's still wet behind the ears. Nothing as it, is it, as it first appears in the outfit. I mean, that's the be- part of this movie. Uh, I reckon we're all the better off for that fact because they've got this series of spectacular reveals late in the piece that really sets the cat amongst the pigeons. Now, Peter, you said it was a little bit too much. You thought it was twist upon twist upon twist at the end. Uh, that they, they overdid it, did you think?
3: Just a, a little bit for me, because there's one twist in the story very late in the piece, yes. which um, you really do have to suspend disbelief a little bit, uh, even though the previous twists were seemed to fit into the storyline quite comfortably. But uh, it it still didn't detract for me uh, the quality of the writing and of the cleverness of the uh, the storyline. So hang on,
0: you, you you don't say suspend disbelief, you suspend belief, don't you?
3: Yeah, I I suppose you can suspend belief and disbelief at the same time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you, though. There's there's much to appreciate and savour in this picture if you stick with it. Dave, did you see it or not?
2: Yeah, I have, and I I really, really enjoyed it. I love dialogue-driven films, and this is another COVID film. Um, It's one of those films where a screenwriter and director sat down and said, well, how do you shoot a gangster film when you're restricted to where you can film? So you just restrict it to one setting, and limited cast on set. And again, it works so well. I don't know why more filmmakers haven't done this over the years. One of my favorite films is actually a film from the eighties called the ice house. um, That was just two people in a room for the entire film. And it works so well, if you've got a good screenwriter on board and that's exactly what happens here. You feel like you're watching a theater production. The screenplay is exceptional. And the actors rise to the challenge. You, if you give most modern-day actors a good script, you can make them look good even if they're a bad actor. So this really, really works really well, and I really loved it.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you, as we've talked many times before, if you've got a good writer or a great writer, boy, what a head start you've got. So score out of 10, day for the outfit.
2: I'm going to give it 8 out of 10.
0: I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, Peter.
3: I really liked also the title, the outfit, because yes. it has a, a number of meanings attached it does, to it. Yeah, yeah, very clever film. Uh, yeah, I, I liked it. Seven out of ten.
0: And great.
1: Yeah, not to be confused with the nineteen seventy three film that starred Robert Duvall. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, no, I quite enjoyed it too. There's a touch of Tarantino to this too. I thought sometimes, especially with the um, standoffs that happen quite frequently in the film there. But I'll give it seven to seven and a half okay, so we're we're in similar territory. it's m a
0: rated one hundred and five minutes. The outfit coming up to our fourth film of the weekend, Orphan first kill, another m a rated ninety eight minuter looking every bit like a ten year old girl, lena, that's l w e n a played by Isabel Furman, is in reality thirty one mm-hmm. She looks like a ten year old but she's thirty one the most dangerous patient in an Estonian psychiatric institution. She's particularly devious, she's she's manipulative, she's opportunistic, she's also deadly. So it is she escapes from this facility. She poses as the long lost young daughter named Esther. Bear in mind, her name is Lena, but she poses as Esther, the daughter of a wealthy American family that disappeared four years earlier and are now going to be reunited. And the father, Alan Albright, played by Ross of Sutherland, who is a gifted artist who lost his mojo when his daughter disappeared, he in particular is ecstatic. They bond. Not so the mother, Tricia, played by Julia Stiles, nor their 16-year-old son, Gunnar, Matthew Finlan. Lena tries to keep up the charade, but there are cracks in the stories that she weaves. Also suspicious is the policeman, Detective Donan, played by Hiro Kanagawa, who handled Esther's disappearance back when this first occurred. Of course, Lena's sinister impulses haven't dissipated, and when she acts upon those, a significant twist occurs, for all is not as it seems. And it appears that Lena is not the only one hiding a dark secret in Orphan First Kill. I gotta say, better than I imagined. I mean, it's intriguing. It's it's a well-woven horror with surprises of plenty. And you know, it's it's kind of like, oh, this is a guilty type pleasure. That's the sort of movie it is. I guy give plaudits the script writer, David Coggershall, who was responsible for the movie Prey, he worked on a story from David Leslie Johnson, McGoldrick and and Alex Mace. And we have to go back to the fact that there was an original called Orphan. This is a prequel. The original Orphan came out 13 years ago, and you've still got the same actor who played the same character 13 years ago in this one, and she was really good in the original, and she's very, very strong again here. So the director, by the way, is William Brent Bell, who ensures there's never a dull moment. Action unfolds, quite a decent clip. And as I say, I appreciated Isabel Furman's performance as Evil Incarnate. She certainly acts the part, the demonic tag seemingly sitting rather comfortably on her shoulders. And I also thought the other standout was Julia Stiles as the society wife with decided smarts of her own. And the game that she and Lena play, mighty dangerous. Uh, it's, it's it's fun to watch play out, though. And I, I thought that they uh, were the two standouts. What did you think, uh, Greg? Have you seen Orphan First Kill?
1: Yeah, I was there on Wednesday night when we saw it there. Um, and as you said, this is a prequel to the uh, the film Orphan There. So it sort of gives you the backstory of how this psychotic kid came to America. Um, and she finds herself tre- stuck in this family that's every bit as nasty as she is. Um and Isabella or plays one of these um creepy kids that sort of feature in horror films. Think of films like The Omen, the Boy, and all those kind of things. And she does a good job, I think, as conveying that sense of s- slow burn menace that she has there. This is an intriguing slow burn horror film there that sort of erupts at the end there with everything going on. Julia Stiles, as you said, was good as a cold mother there. Um, and I thought the director, William Brent Bell, held, handled the material quite stylishly there. Um, it's not your average horror film with a slasher killer there. It's much more subtle in it goes, but it's quite entertaining
0: by the end. Yeah, I agree. I think that's that's the key here. I, I was really engaged and entertained throughout, and I think that's the, that real test. If you can get a film like that that are going to draw people in, because some people are going to like horror straight away, but I think it's got even broader appeal than that. Quite frankly, even though a lot of people, I dare say, are going to say, "Oh no, there's going to be bloodshed. I'm not going to go along and see it." Yeah, I, it, it's. um I I suppose I I went in there not expecting a great deal and came out pleasantly surprised. What about you, Dave?
2: Yeah, look, I love the original film. The original film has become a cult classic amongst horror fans, but this film is the result of what happens when horror fans point out a plot hole in a film because the reason this film exists is because Alex Mace and David Leslie Johnson McAldrick, what a long name, um, couldn't rest when... Critics and fans pointed out in the first film that there was a little bit of a plot point on how an orphan would have got to America to have been adopted by a family. So they sat on this for years, of that criticism, and gone, you know what? We're going to make a prequel that's going to show that we were right in the first place. <laughs> um, so much pressure on the people behind this film because of how much the first film was loved, but I think they, uh, they're up to the task. Um, I interviewed the director and he said that he's never felt more pressure on a film because he knew that this was a fan favorite and i think they've delivered it this film has suspense it captures the essence of the first film the the character of esther is what we saw in the first film as well so it's it's so tight that it works and that's very very rare in the horror genre when a prequel is made that it actually holds up to the first film as well. Mm, Well put. In fact, you think about the pressure on filmmakers. You get a
0: standout movie not in one genre but a broad-based film. Think about Star Wars and anybody who puts their hand up or anybody who makes a Bond movie or whatever, the weight of expectations on their shoulders to begin with, regardless of any money they might be paid, if you get it wrong or you get elements wrong, you're immediately called to account and you may you know, may not be working in Hollywood at that level again. So you can you can extrapolate from what you've just said to make that broader point. What do you what do you think, Peter? Uh,
3: look, I was ready to dismiss this film uh, early on because I thought here's another standard genre horror, uh, nasty revenge, whatever sort of film. Um, and then the twist. Mm. And. And it's a bit like The Sixth Sense and so on. We have to be careful as reviewers that we don't give away a major plot point and that twist in the storyline is what grabbed me and uh, and kept me interested Absolutely. for the rest of the and film. the
0: way it comes about, Peter, uh, it, it's not as if it, you, there's no, there's, there's nothing to lead up to it until you then think about it afterwards and it just yep. happens and you're thinking, wow, did did that really happen you you'd, you'd kind of do a double take and i thought that was sensational
3: it was, and 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 that's what really kept me intrigued. But it's so interesting how we do have to be careful not to not do spoilers, and and uh, because I think that's such an important part of the film that uh, that plot twist. And it was really uh, interesting to see Isabel Furman uh, reprising her role, and as you say, she's uh, uh, thirty one years of age or whatever, and still looks like a teenager. It's incredible the way that was shot. Um, so look, I was quite impressed by this film by the time it concluded. I thought it uh, was a very clever uh, genre piece and uh, played out
0: very well indeed, I thought. Yeah, the, the diverse settings in the movie, they're, they're quite alluring, the light and shade. Regardless of that, though, the constant is the inherent darkness in the lead character. And and that that is what's so... This has bite. There's no question about that. She was really good, Isabel Furman, in the original. She and this prequel have quite a bit going for them. So, folks, it's worth... and. You don't need to have seen the original. That's the other thing. It's it's okay. You can if you've seen it. I think it's an advantage. But if you haven't, it's not. You can still enjoy this on its own. Orphan First Kill. That's the name of the movie. Ninety eight minutes. M A rated. Score, Peter.
3: I really liked it. Seven out
2: of ten. Greg. Six and a half to seven. And Dave. I'm giving it seven and a half. And an interesting little fact that the director told me as well. The COVID restrictions were so tight when they filmed this film that none of the cast ever saw his face until the film's premiere. Wow.
0: Gee, that is, yeah, and I, I think there'd be lots of situations like that, no question. I'm also giving it a 7.5 out of 10. So that's great. I mean, it's, it's one to, to watch out for. We are into theatre mode now, which is really good because we can talk about something that I've had the good fortune to see for the third time. Um, <laughs> We're talking about Come From Away at the Comedy Theatre. Each occasion I exit the theatre in awe of what I've just witnessed, and each of them have been different productions in as much as some of the actors have changed. But it's a show I cannot get enough of, and and with really good reason because so brilliantly told, magnificently performed, a most remarkable story, and behind it is the most heinous of tragedies. Come From Away is dramatic, it's comedic, it's romantic, it's overlaid with immense sadness and apprehension, yet its core is drawn from the very best of humanity, triumph of spirit, of strength, of resilience. I reckon it's a combination of marvellous writing, exceptional direction, superb choreography, you've got minimal staging, a harmonious 12-strong cast and seven talented musicians, and it just works a treat. And even the musos, I mean, the, the kind of music, combination, Dave, of, of Celtic and more familiar instruments to produce this distinctive sound. Do you remember how it started? Throbbing pulse of the what's called the bodron, yep. reminiscent of somebody dancing on a wooden floor. It just works, doesn't it? It,
2: really it does. Well. It, it, it's absolutely amazing. My two favourite musicals of all time have always been Once and Oliver, yeah. and I put this up with that. I, I just found this absolutely remarkable. The the universe had transpired against me the other times to see this. Now this is so your
0: first, this is your, you're a virgin come from away person.
2: Definitely. And this absolutely
0: wow. blew oh, me away. Is, well, I remember when I first, yeah, thank you. They're the words, blew me away. When you first see this, you think, how could anybody be this brilliant to come up with a script from one of the most tragic events in history? And they have.
3: They,
0: they have it, yeah. Uh, look, it's feel good, isn't it? As well, when you know, given it's. By the way, it's a hundred minutes without interval, and it does not let up, does it,
2: Dave? No, and you find yourself going on a real emotional journey as well. There are times when you are laughing with what's happening with the characters. There are other times when you're deep in thought about what would I have done if I was in that situation. And then there's times when you want to cry. It it really does take you on that emotional journey with all of the characters and i have to say zoe gertz yes amazing performance Mm -hmm. playing beverly the pilot she is amazing and i was sitting only a couple of rows back from the stage so i could see up close how much power she was putting into her songs into her performance and it was amazing i haven't seen a performance like that for a long time She's one of the uh, Dave. There's only three or four of the originals in
0: this. Bear in mind that just to give you a bit of a time frame here, it started in it was debuted in Broadway or on Broadway, February twenty seventeen, and it, it claimed the Tony Award for best direction, not surprisingly. Now in Melbourne, it came here in the middle of twenty nineteen. Then it came back at the start of last year. And now it's here again. And Zoe Gertz played the first female captain of an American Airlines aircraft from that very first show. She was a member of the original Australian company. As I mentioned, only three or four of the twelve now are from that original production. And it, it would, I mean, I I don't know one person who's seen this who hasn't raved about it. I, I actually don't know. I I don't think you could get a bad review for Come From Away. Could you?
2: No, look, it was one of those performances where I wanted to walk out and buy tickets for the next night at the box office. Yeah. I, I could go and see this eight, nine times and, and still see something different every time. A hundred percent. Now, let for those people who, who haven't seen it or don't know what it's about,
0: it's inspired by fact and it, it restores your faith in the world. It, it, as you say, it, it's moving, it's uplifting, it's funny, it's energetic, it's melodic. And who would have thought anyone could turn such a dastardly deed on its head and create something so powerful and so positive and so theatrical? And the story is set in Newfoundland. And for those people who don't know where that is, it's an island off the far northeast coast of Canada. And it's set after the September 11 terrorist attacks of 2001, 9-11. As a result, for the first time, American airspace was shut down. 38 commercial aircraft carrying 6,579 passengers from 92 countries were diverted to this sleepy hollow, Newfoundland. Population, 9,651 and four traffic lights. They were ill-equipped to handle a deluge of people. But led by the mayor of Gander, the citizens of Newfoundland rallied and they found a way through. And when the folk landed... Those on board the planes, they had no idea what had just happened. When they found out, like the rest of the world, they were deeply shocked. They just wanted to get home, but they couldn't for five long days. And in the meantime, the townsfolk went way beyond the call of duty to lend a helping hand. By so doing, they entrenched Newfoundland into the psyche of all who inadvertently found their way there. And amongst the chaos, That place, Newfoundland, became an unexpected haven, which the weary travellers took to heart. Of course, there was tension, there was distrust, there was fear, there was heartbreak, also overwhelming goodwill from the locals, and and that's what won out. So in this story, come from a way, love is lost and found and new lifelong friendships are forged, all in the space of just a few days that change those involved. By the way, do you know where the title... Come from away comes from Dave.
2: No, I don't actually.
0: It, because when you hear it, you're thinking we talked about titles earlier in this segment. It, it, the titles are really important, and you sort of it, to remember it is difficult enough when you when you first hear it. So so this is its origin. The Newfoundlanders refer to those not born on the island as come from aways. That's that's where the title was born. And because it's had such success, people now understand because it, it doesn't make English sense when you first hear "come from away." It, it's an odd it's an odd collection of words put together. So to create the show, the Canadian writers Irene Sankoff and David Hine they're responsible for the music, the lyrics, and the books. They went and the book rather they went straight to the source. They travelled to Newfoundland for the tenth anniversary of that fateful week, and they collected hundreds of hours of interviews that they distilled into this completed work that we see come from away. So, I mean, it's the, the pedigree of it. And, yeah, I thought Zoe Gertz was amazing. And the other standouts, David Silvestri was great as the larger-than-life mayor of Gander, wasn't he?
2: He was. And the other person that I really, really thought did an amazing job too was Joe Kosky, yeah, of course, who plays the police officer. I And I, I noted him
0: as well. I agree with you, David. But the two of them, they're just I mean, you just believe them. <laughs> it just, and the, oh, by the way, what about the portrayal of the com- comic showing or comedic showing of Kyle Brown, who's worried that they're going to steal his uh, wallet?
2: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And that's what I mean. It's really hard to pinpoint people from this production because you've got Kat Harrison as well, who does an amazing job as the the animal rescuer who doesn't care yeah. what the security says. She's going to, get on those planes to rescue the animals. There's so much amazing performances. And, and like you said, there's a mixture as well. There's comedic performances, there's dramatic performances, and it just all flows and works so well. The, the other thing we should say is that all of them play multiple characters. That,
0: yep. that's the other. So we've talked about one of their characters, but. One that immediately comes to mind, Emma Powell. She she plays this sort of empathetic local, and then they get on with it. You know, the person who just gets on with the business. She's the one. Remember, there was somebody who came from one of the Arab nations who wanted to help. Uh, he was an Egyptian, actually, and yep. uh, he he wanted to help make the food. and And she was the one dismissive of 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 him initially. And then you've got the empathy she shows to another woman who has come, who's whose son is a firefighter, and the son's gone missing. So this is the the role of Emma Powell. What about the set, Dave?
2: Really, really minimalist, wasn't it? It is, but it works. Like the, the chairs play a very important part. The chairs yeah. are used in every scene, and they become um, plain chairs. They become... Bar chairs and it's minimalistic, but it works um really well. Bo Wolf Borrett is responsible
0: for the scenic design. You've also got that revolving central stage, which is quite common these days. You just got a few trees on either side, and then yep. suddenly some signs light up because it becomes a bar. So, well and there's fifteen songs. They're rousing. They're poignant. So much happens, and the words and the lyrics both tell a tale of anguish and inspiration. Directed by Christopher Ashley, musical supervision, Ian Eisendrath, musical staging by Kelly Devine. And the narrative, doesn't
2: it move along at pace, Dave? It does. And one of the things that I really thought I might have had an issue with was knowing that everybody plays so many characters, I thought I might have got lost. I didn't. It, It It works so well. The director has done an amazing job making sure that that element of the show works for the entire audience to keep up with it 100 narrative moves along and it leaves you feeling buoyant
0: i cannot recommend come from away more highly it is an astounding piece of work it's brilliantly conceived and executed so what do you reckon dave see it for the first time second third regardless just go and see it yeah
2: definitely in my top three musicals of all time now
0: yeah, yeah I, I and in ter- Dave greg you always ask me about scores i'd give this a 10 out of 10 have you seen it or not
1: I saw it a lot when it was here the first time around, Alex. I loved it too. Uh, I agree with what you and David have been saying about it, especially the staging, using the chairs as different props throughout the thing. The fact that the actors play multiple characters here and they do the switches on stage. Um, and the songs are just so infectious and enjoyable. And i learned so much about this, about what happened at that, at that That's a brilliant point, Greg, really
0: brilliantly said. I, I agree. And listen, I'm going to have to quickly move on because we're almost out of time. Peter, please go and see this. I know you don't see theatre usually. Please, please, please go and see it. I want to talk about the dark web at Chapel Off Chapel by a production organisation or, or collection called Bottled Snail, and they're it's it, it put together by people in the legal fraternity. It is really clever. It's melodic. It, it, only today you got to see it. it. It's a delightful, rib-tickling original musical from the vivid imagination of its writer, composer and star. Ariella Gordon is her name. 90 minutes without interval, four principal performers, another four in the ensemble concerning a dysfunctional family. You've got June played by Ariella Gordon, who has got this 15-year-old uh, niece called Andy, played by Eleanor Davy, And it's one of these situations where Andy is embarrassed to have June as an aunt. And their interaction starts when June buys a couple of cringe-inducing T-shirts with, with, le- with words on it. That's as much as I want to say. June's really good-natured. She's kind-hearted. She's enthusiastic. But she's incredibly naive, and she can't manage to land a job. Try as she does to find one. She just wants any job arrogance and entitlement are the chief traits of a successful businessman called Devon, played by Rory Priest, who's got no idea of his daughter Andy's capabilities. So this is why I'm saying it's a family-type story. And things go – oh, there's one other character. Andy's out there grandma, played by Robin Parker. She delights in upending convention when it comes to a senior citizen. She's out to shock, and she certainly does that. And things really go off the rails when – Andy, the 15-year-old, encourages technologically dyslexic June, the aunt, to forge new friendships in an online chat room. So Andy teaches her the most basic of skills. Then she leaves June to her own devices. And that's the problem because guess what? She quickly finds her way onto the dark web and chaos ensures. So that's the, the plot point in this incredible musical called The Dark Web, tell you what, laugh aloud funny, speaks to the pervasive nature of the internet and the divide between those in the know and others without a clue. And the performances, wow. Theatrically, Gordon and Davey, they really stand out, excellent performers, they can sing wonderfully, bounce off each other magnificently. The timbre in Priest's vocals as well, superb. All of them can really hold a tune. And what pointedly comic tunes they are too. And hats off again to Gordon for the idea and the execution. And as far as the granny is concerned, Parker clearly loves her show pony status in this show. She struts about with a fake toothy grin. She deliberately stirs the pot as grandma as the action keeps unfolding. And there's even a rap number from her to add to her repertoire. So not just the script, but the choreographed dance numbers, that's the work of Louise Reeder, that stands out backed by a really talented band under the musical supervision of Jude Angove, and there are a few memorable saxophone stings. Watch out for that. Deftly directed by Madeleine Hale. It is called The Dark Web, triumphant, tantalising piece of musical theatre from the fraternity involved. They've put on lots of shows, Bottle of Snail, since 2013, and they've been, been involved in all sorts of projects, creative projects, full-scale theatre productions to concerts, and they've raised tens of thousands of dollars for charity by doing it. Please go to Chapel of Chapel and see The Dark Web. It finishes today. You've got one last chance to see it. That is all, folks. We will catch you next week on First On Film and Entertainment.